Few things are harder than the mission of raising your kids. At The Dad Project, we get experienced dads to reveal what's worked for them, offering practical, time-tested advice. Being a successful dad is tough, and we're here to help you get it done. Welcome to The Dad Project. In this episode of The Dad Project, Tom Spence discusses dads' critical influence on what their children read and gives advice for fostering in children the habit of reading great literature. Tom is based in Washington, D.C. and is an editor at a book publishing company. He and his wife have 10 children and four grandchildren. A few years ago, I wrote a short opinion piece for a newspaper about efforts to get boys to read by giving them books that appeal to what we might call their lower sensibilities. I asserted, incidentally, that if you really want to get boys to read, get rid of the video screens. Curiously enough, there was probably more reaction to my incidental point about TV and video games than to my main point about what children read. A lot of people, mostly men, get very defensive if you suggest that there's something wrong with kids spending a lot of time on electronic devices. I suspect that's because these adults are guilty of this themselves. I think they know they should read more and spend less time in front of a screen. It's a guilty conscience talking. To be fair, in the years since I wrote that piece, many parents have woken up to the danger of excessive screen time, even if they have not yet done anything about it. In this talk, I will not be telling you anything you don't already know. Perhaps I will remind you of one or two things, and I hope I will encourage you to do what you already know you ought to do. Why is reading important? First, let's consider how reading fits into a father's general task of forming his children. Reading forms the imagination, and imagination is important for virtue. Among the most important aspects of raising children is forming their imaginations. In The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis cites Plato and Aristotle on the point that right education means being raised, quote, so as to delight in and to be pained by the things that we ought. The little human animal, Lewis writes, will not at first have the right responses. It must be trained to feel pleasure, liking, disgust, and hatred at those things which really are pleasant, likable, disgusting, and hateful. Imagination is a big part of this. It determines whether a man loves or hates the things that he ought to love or hate. It is closely connected, then, to character. In his magnificent book, Ten Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, Anthony Esselin fleshes out the role of the imagination in the intellectual, moral, and even physical development of children. This is a book that every father should read, and I'll come back to it later. William Kilpatrick, in Books That Build Character, writes, We seem to have forgotten about the power of the imagination. We've forgotten that children are motivated far more by what attracts the imagination than by what appeals to reason. He goes on, And imagination is one of the keys to virtue. It's not enough to know what's right. It's also necessary to desire to do right. Desire, in turn, is directed to a large extent by imagination. In theory, 
Reason should guide our moral choices, but in practice it is imagination, much more than reason, that calls the shots. Stories are among the most important shapers of the imagination. Kilpatrick cites four reasons why this is true. Quote, First, because stories can create an emotional attachment to goodness, a desire to do the right thing. Second, because stories provide a wealth of good examples, the kind of examples that are often missing from a child's day-to-day -day environment. Third, because stories familiarize youngsters with the codes of conduct they need to know. Finally, because stories help to make sense out of life, help us to cast our own lives as stories, and unless this sense of meaning is acquired at an early age and reinforced as we grow, er grow older, there simply is no moral growth. End of quote. Every father has a sacred trust to form his child's imagination according to the good, the true, and the beautiful. Aside from imparting a knowledge of the doctrines of their faith, I can think of no more important task for parents than forming their ch children's imaginations. Some people can, however. A task force appointed by the Council on Foreign Relations, which included Condoleezza Rice and Joel Klein, produced a report called U.S. Education Reform and National Security. The task force praises the fashionable Common Core state standards. Quote, in literacy, the standards place a greater emphasis on students' ability to read, understand, and summarize informational texts than previous state standards. In recent history, U.S. elementary students have spent most of their time reading narrative fiction. The new standards aim to build knowledge from an early age by requiring that 50% of students' time between kindergarten and the fifth grade be spent on reading informational texts. Unquote. At least one successful statesman had a different approach. In his autobiography, Theodore Roosevelt wrote, Now and then I am asked as to what books a statesman should read, and my answer is poetry and novels, including short stories under the head of novels. Roosevelt clarifies that this is not all that a statesman should read. He should also read books on history and government, science and philosophy. Continuing with Roosevelt, quote, in the final event, the statesman and the publicist and the reformer and the agitator for new things and the upholder of what is good in, all, in, in old things all need more than anything else to know human nature, to know the needs of the human soul, and they will find this nature and these needs set forth as nowhere else by the great imaginative writers, whether of prose or of poetry. Not everyone agrees with this view, however. The Common Core State Standards Initiative may want to ignore children's imaginations, but much of the American publishing industry is mobilized to deform them. I was provoked to write that newspaper piece by an Associated Press story about the trend in publishing toward gross-out or potty-humor books for boys. The publication of these books is justified on the grounds that they are necessary to get boys to read at all. The money quote in the AP story was from a librarian who said, quote, just get them reading, worry about what they're reading later. One of the publishers I singled out for attention was Scholastic. 
In a response on the company's blog, a children's librarian wrote, quote, I can't imagine that a parent or teacher would be upset at a child in general, and a boy in particular, coming up to them and saying that they have just read 220 pages of a book that they enjoyed. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, that is how many pages are in The Day My Butt Went Psycho, unquote. This particular librarian revealed something about the circles she runs in when she commented further, quote, I've never actually seen an elementary or middle school-aged boy read Robert Louis Stevenson, misspelt, in their original form. A self-published children's author wrote on the same blog, quote, a good boy's book doesn't have to be devoid of toilet talk. Has anyone, seen, has anyone seen a guy movie recently that wasn't littered with rude jokes and rude images? It's the times we live in. Crude and rude is all the rage, and books, we like to think, are a higher form of entertainment. That's just not always the case. This was not always the prevailing view in educational circles. Early in the 20th century, the former president of Harvard, Charles W. Eliot, wrote an introduction to the 10-volume Junior Classics. Quote, Thoughtful parents and teachers who realize the evils of indiscriminate reading on the part of children will appreciate the educational value of this collection. A child's taste in reading is formed as a rule in the first 10 or 12 years of its life, and experience has shown that the childish mind will prefer good literature to any other if access to it is made easy and will develop far better on literature of proved merit than on trivial or transitory material. No one really believes that it doesn't matter what children read, of course. If the reading material in question were thought to be racist, then however engrossing it might be, the people at Scholastic would sing a different tune. Beyond, behind this devil-may-care attitude about children's reading is a particular view of the human person, and with it, a particular social agenda, which you already know about. But there's no escaping it, and constant vigilance is required. Another reason that reading is important is that it is necessary for a life of recollection. We want our children to become capable of living a recollected life. We want them to develop the habit of self-examination, of prayerful consideration, both prospective and retrospective, of their course of action. Ret recollection should mark every aspect of a man's life, and a recollected life is compatible with heavy familial, professional, and social responsibilities. Reading is essential for this life of recollection because it fosters the habit of study. Recollection and attention, however, go against the grain of our fallen nature. In the 17th century, Blaise Pascal wrote in his Pensée, Misery. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion, and yet this is the greatest of our miseries. For it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves, and which makes us insensibly ruin ourselves. Without this, we should be in a state of weariness, and this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But diversion amuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. Reading develops the powers of study, which develop the faculty of attention. 
but there's reading and there's reading. The wrong kind of reading encourages the common form of distraction we call curiosity, which is the opposite of study. Curiosity is fed by what is called the news, which is the only kind of reading many people do. The best treatment of that topic I have come across is John Somerville's brilliant article, Why the News Makes Us Dumb, in the October 1991 issue of First Things, which I commend to everyone. Reading is an essential part of developing a life of recollection, not only because it fosters study, but also because of what accompanies it, silence. In 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, Anthony Esselin writes, ironically, a la C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, quote, recall that the imagination is a natural faculty in man. Some people make the mistake of fostering it, but it is often so powerful on its own that it will assert itself if we simply allow people to live what used to pass for an ordinary life. If you are breathing hard from the airborne soot of a city, all it may take for your lungs to clear again is to spend a week in the country. And all it might take for the imagination to breathe again is some time in solitude and silence. Then solitude and silence must be abolished. You can deny the existence of God and of any meaning in the universe. You may take out the democratic steamroller and flatten all heroes in sight, or, perhaps more wisely, raise every ordinary selfish fool to the status of a hero. You may laugh at manhood and womanhood and deprive boys and girls of ways to express longings natural to their sex. You may douse the flames of love of country and convict your forefathers of wickedness for not doing everything as you do. You may see all the world through the lens of politics. You may schedule a child into submission. You may keep him from witnessing honest and ingenious labor. You may muffle him up indoors. It will all be in vain if you allow him moments of silence and solitude. Unquote. A father should ask himself, how often is my home quiet? If there are small children in the house, quiet might mean not an absence of sound, but an absence of noise. And when the small ones are in bed, is there ever a time when the television and the computers and the smartphones are off and everyone is reading? How do you get children to read? This is really a very easy question. The answer is that mothers and fathers must resolve that their children will be readers and then act in a way consistent with that goal. William Kilpatrick observes that many parents succumb to a primitive sense of fate when it comes to their children. Remember the self-published children's author from the Scholastic blog, It's the Times We Live In. The danger is a confused desire to make your children happy, or a more blameworthy desire to get them out of your hair or make them popular. Parents must think clearly and deeply about these matters. How much television and computer and video games is compatible with developing a habit and love of reading? Any? Does your child need a smartphone, which has become the deadliest enemy of reading? Also, I tell parents, beware of wholesome videos. I'm often asked, how do I win the argument over video games? The answer to that question ought to be, what argument? 
In an interesting book called Bringing Up Bebe, Pamela Druckerman, an American journalist stationed in France, writes about the differences she noticed in the way the French raise their children. Quote, authority is one of the most impressive parts of French parenting and perhaps the toughest one to master. Many French parents I meet have an easy, calm authority with their children that I can only envy. Their kids actually listen to them. French children aren't constantly dashing off, talking back, or engaging in prolonged negotiations, unquote. You don't have to be French to have this authority. You just need confidence and fortitude. Beyond these questions of parental spine, there are a couple of obvious principles. First, you must be a reader yourself. What do you do in the evening, on the weekend, when there's free time? Read aloud to your children as much as possible. And if you keep reading aloud in the family when they're older, that's even better. Have many books in the house if you can afford it. Theodore Roosevelt described his family's home this way, quote, the books are everywhere. There are as many in the north room and in the parlor as in the library. The gun room at the top of the house, which incidentally has the loveliest view of all, contains more books than any of the other rooms, and they are particularly delightful books to browse among just because they have not much relevance to one another, this being one of the reasons why they are relegated to their present abode. But the books have overflowed into all the other rooms, too. Unquote. The last question, I suppose, is what books should your children read? Life is too short for bad books. Fun reading doesn't mean worthless reading, and it goes without saying that they should not read things that are deforming of morals or manners. Theodore Roosevelt gave his opinion on what books to read. Quote, Books are almost as individual as friends. There is no earthly use in laying down general laws about them. Some meet the needs of one person and some of another. Personally, granted that these books are decent and healthy, the one test to which I demand that they all submit is that of being interesting. If the book is not interesting to the reader, then in all but an infinitesimal number of cases, it gives scant benefit to the reader. Of course, any reader ought to cultivate his or her taste so that good books will appeal to it and that trash won't. But after this point has once been reached, the needs of each reader must be met in a fashion that will appeal to those needs. Personally, the books by which I have profited, profited infinitely more than by any others have been those in which profit was a byproduct of the pleasure. That is, I read them because I enjoyed them, because I liked reading them, and the profit came, as, came in as part of the enjoyment. Unquote. My wife's and my chief criterion in this is, do I enjoy reading this book? A good children's book, from Goodnight Moon to Treasure Island, is a pleasure for adults, too. Again, there are too many wonderful children's books to waste your time on the dross. If there are illustrations, they should be excellent, not cheap and banal. Guide your children, but let them have a choice in their reading. This principle applies to child-rearing in general, it's how you train children in responsible freedom. Avoid stocking your home library primarily from new bookstores. There's always the library, and you can get almost any old title you want online. In general, older is better, 
but don't assume that every old book is worthwhile. I will conclude by reading from a letter that Erasmus of Rotterdam wrote to Guillaume Boudet in 1521 about an English friend, one of the most intellectually and professionally accomplished men of his age. This Englishman was the head of a large household, and he paid close attention to the education and formation of each child, even while rising to the heights of the legal profession and government. He was unusual in his time in the way he educated his daughters, the eldest of whom became the most learned woman in Europe. Here is how Erasmus described the household of Sir Thomas More. Quote, he takes pains to give his whole household an education in good literature, setting thereby a new precedent, which, if I mistake not, will soon be widely followed, so happy is the outcome. In More's household, you never see one of the girls idle or busied with the trifles that women enjoy. They have a livy in their hands. They have made such progress that they can read and understand authors of that class without anyone to explain them, unless they come upon some word that might have held up even me or someone like me. There is no journey, no business, however voluminous or difficult, that can take the book out of Moore's hand. And yet it would be hard to find anyone who was more truly a man for all seasons and all men. Noting the education Moore provided for his daughters, Erasmus continues, for two things in particular are perilous to a girl's virtue, idleness and improper amusements, and against both of these the love of literature is a protection. Nothing so occupies a girl's whole heart as the love of reading. And besides this advantage, that the mind is kept from pernicious idleness, this is the way to absorb the highest principles, which can both instruct and inspire the mind in the pursuit of virtue. A mind developed and exercised by reading has this advantage, that it can recognize good and just reasons for what they are and perceive what conduct is proper and what is profitable. You don't have to have Thomas More's genius to raise readers, but you can learn from his prudence and determination. You're the dad. Lead your children with the invitation that changed St. Augustine's life. Tole, lege, take and read. Hey, thanks for listening to The Dad Project. If this talk was valuable to you, please go to our website at dadproject.net and make a voluntary one-time or recurring donation to help support our operations. Any amount helps. Catch you next time at The Dad Project. <laughs>